Just over two years ago, Magdalene died. Or at least that's what Kimmy and I thought. After a difficult pregnancy coupled with growing complications and alarming symptoms, we feared that Kimmy had miscarried the baby in her womb. So we got on the phone and called the doctor and, or the midwife, and our suspicions were confirmed. The midwife told us, uh, it sounds like you've had a miscarriage. And so we made a doctor's appointment to go and make sure Kimmy didn't have any infection going on, and then we wept for days, mourned the loss of our child. We prayed that God would receive our child and that Kimmy would have healing in many ways through this experience, that she would find healing in God's grace. Then we went to the doctor's office, and we walked in, and the, or the, the midwifery, we walked in and the midwife began an ultrasound. And she looked at Kimmy and I and she said, your baby's alive. She has a perfectly healthy heartbeat. And we were stunned. The reason it was so hard to believe is because we had spent a week mourning her loss and giving her to the Lord. And now we were told she's alive. We almost couldn't believe it. Do you remember this, Kimmy? <laughs> but then the ultrasound, the midwife, she turned on the speaker so we could hear the heartbeat, and we heard thump, 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 thump. And we knew it was true. To us, it was as if Magdalene was raised from the dead. And then by God's providence, she was born on Easter Sunday. And so we had to name her Magdalene, the first person to see the risen Christ. It's a beautiful story. We're so thankful. Obviously, we're insanely thankful that resurrection came into our lives in a profound way. And the world, the world is hungry for resurrection story. We see it in the, the greatest writings and stories of our, our world, from Apollo searching Hades to bring back the love of his life in Greek mythology to Aslan who's raised back, yes, Aslan's raised to life in Narnia after he gave his life on the, the table. Do you remember that? Or Gandalf slayed by the Balrog, comes back to Middle-earth. He's resurrected. Or how about Nero? I'm sorry, Neo is raised to life because of love in the Matrix. Classic stories of resurrection. And they capture our imagination, these stories that have resurrection in them, and they pull at the deepest part of our hearts and our lives. We, we want them to be true. We want to know that death is not the end that there's hope afterwards. And so we're drawn to these stories, really, listen, because we fear death. We fear that moment when it all ends. And so we want to read these stories and think about these stories where there could be life. Death is the great reality that levels the world. The richest people in the world will die. 
the poorest people in the world will die. The righteous will die. And the unrighteous. How about this? The fit and unfit will all die. And humanity is paralyzed by a collective fear of death. Though often in our secular world, people try to pretend they're not, the scriptures tell us in Hebrews 2.15, this is the NIV, it says, all humanity is held in slavery by their fear of death. It's true, God's word has said it. We want to break free from the slavery and be freed from the fear. And know that there is resurrection story in our future. But to many in our post-everything world, resurrection, it seems too impossible. It seems otherworldly. It's, it's too fantastic. So it stays in the stories, right? It stays in the myths and the legends and the fantasies. And it doesn't come into our lives. But listen, deep in the back of your neighbor's minds, your coworkers, mine, they are wondering, could it be true? Could there be something after death? Could it possibly be peaceful and everlasting? <clears throat> Jacob, the patriarch, whose story we've really been following Jacob's genealogy, Jacob's story through the lives of Judah and Joseph for a handful of chapters now. We've been working our way through this. But here, he is confronted with the supernatural, with the impossible, with the too good to be true. When in Genesis 45, verse 26, 11, his 11 living sons come to him and they say, Dad... Joseph is alive. The one you thought, the one we all thought was dead, he is alive. And it goes on, the verse says that he responded with a numb heart because he could not believe it. In the New English translation, it says he was stunned. We were stunned when this midwife said she's alive. And when Jacob hears that his son is alive after 20-some years, he just can't believe it. But how did the story get here? How is it that resurrection has come into Genesis, come into Jacob's life? We're going to begin in chapter 44, verse 1, and we're going to work our way back up to stunned Jacob. And I, we're going to... I can't cover all of it. Jonah read for 20 minutes the two chapters for us. Thank you very much. So we're not going to cover it all, but I think it'll be sufficient, and I pray that the Lord is pleased with our, our study this morning. Have your text open to Genesis 44 if you'd like, or your liturgy, and I will guide you through this passage and draw your attention to specific verses. In Genesis 44, verse 1, remember, this is after partying all day with his brothers, Joseph, do they know it's Joseph yet? 
No, this is just some lord in Egypt who has blessed them with a ton of food and drink. And they had a great, they were drinking and making merry. That's what the verse says. And then it's the next day. That's what's going on. Joseph puts his brothers through another test. Remember, he has tested them, wanting to know, what is the moral fiber of my brothers now? Are they still who they used to be? Are they still bent on destroying our father's favorite son? They have a track record of destroying the father's favorite son, right? And then here is another test that we see in this passage. He, he puts food in their sacks. He puts money in their sacks. But that's not the test. He also takes his silver cup. They would have all shared from this cup the day before, drinking. Well, he takes his chalice and he hides it in Benjamin's sack. Why another test? Well, first of all, God still has some work to do in their lives. But Joseph also wants to know, is Benjamin going to be safe? What did Benjamin, how did Joseph treat Benjamin as compared to the other brothers? He gave him five times more food. Can you imagine you're at a turkey dinner for Thanksgiving? How much food is on your plate usually? Way too much. And then you look at your five times too much, but then you look at your brother's plate and it's, he had to carry it like this to the table, you know? And so he has treated Benjamin with favor. How will the brothers respond to this? It's another test. Well, in verse 3 of chapter 44, as soon as the morning was light, the family, they set out. They are going home, and everything seems to be going really well. Who's with them that wasn't with them before? Two brothers. Do you remember? Benjamin and Simeon. They're going home. They're all going home, and they have all the provisions that they need, that their father, it's, things look like they're going great, but then out of nowhere, here comes the steward, just as they get out of town. And the steward, because his master told him to, the, to do this, accuses the brothers of stealing Joseph's cup, of stealing Joseph's cup. And he lays it on thick. He says, one of you has taken Joseph's divination cup. This is probably just part of the ruse. They think Joseph's a lord in Egypt, and people in Egypt practice divination by swirling liquid and looking in to see what they could see. But Joseph had revelation from God. So this is just part of the story. The brothers say, no, 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 no. We are innocent. Remember, we just returned all of that money. Why would we then steal something? That would be crazy. And we're sure we don't have it. In fact, we're so sure if we, we don't have it that if you find it, whoever has it will die. And we'll all be your servants. See how confident they are that they don't have the cup. They didn't take it. And so the steward begins looking through the bags. He first says, listen, I don't want anybody to die. We'll just take the one who has the cup into slavery, into captivity, and the rest of you can go home. That's what he says. And then he begins looking. And how does he look? Do you remember through the bags? He begins with who? The oldest. The The drama is thick here. And he just pulls it all out, dumps it on the ground. 
right? Dumps it on the ground. All the way down, they're all like, Phew, we don't have the cup, we told you. And then he dumps the bag on the ground for Benjamin and clink, 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 clink. There's the cup. But here, we see a hint that Joseph's brothers have changed. They tear their clothes in sorrow. Remember, one of their brothers was thrown into a pit, but before they did that, they ripped his clothes from him. Now it looks like this brother, this favored son, is going to be ripped from them, and they tear their own clothes in sorrow. And instead of going home, saying, well, Benjamin, that stinks, you're caught, see you later, they say, we're going to Egypt. We are not going home without our brother. And they head to Egypt, and suddenly they're before, these is like verses 12, 14, 15, 12, 13, 14, they come to Egypt, and all of a sudden they're on the ground again before Zaphonath. This is a different word than what we've read, bowed. This is like, just, you can't stand because you're so sorry and weeping. And they get before Joseph, and Joseph says, this is verse 15 in your text. What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? As in, how could you possibly steal from me? I, would, I know divination, so I could know that you took the cup. But is that how Joseph knew the cup was in the bag? Divination. How do you know the cup was in the bag? He put it there. So he's playing the part as well. Well, what will the brothers do? How will they plead? What, what length will they go to for Benjamin? Enter Judah, the restored brother who had repented of his broken past. Remember, he had promised his father, Father, I will do whatever it takes to make sure Benjamin comes home. And Judah speaks up. It's in verse 16. What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? How can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose the cup has been found. When Judas says, when he confesses, God has found out our guilt, he is not talking about the cup. They all know they're innocent of that. What he's talking about is if you go back to Genesis 42, remember they said, in truth, we have sinned against Joseph. Remember that? They confessed that. And then it was Reuben who said, a reckoning is coming. We are going to have to account for our crimes. This is where they think the punishment has fallen. We're all going to stay in Egypt because we are guilty sinners. We destroyed our brother's lives, and for that we're going to be destroyed, and our father will die in sorrow without any of his sons. And Joseph says, this is verse 17, he says, listen, I don't need all of you to stay. I just want him because he's guilty. The rest of you go to your father, what does it say, in what? In peace but that's not going to happen. If they go to Benjamin, or if they go to Jacob without Benjamin, there will not be 
peace. Well, then Judah, he takes a step closer to this Egyptian. He moves in closer to him. It says in verse 18, Judah went up to him. And then he launches into, from verses 16 to 34, the longest speech in the book of Genesis. In his appeal to the Egyptian Lord, Judah says the word Father 15 times. And clearly, as you look through these verses, his concern is for the well-being of Jacob, the patriarch. His well-being is for his father. And he now knows that Benjamin's life is so tied to his father's life that to lose Benjamin is to also lose his father. He comments that Benjamin's brother is already dead. The other one that my father loves so much, he's been taken away because of the guilty crime we committed. You have to understand, we have to go home with Benjamin. And if you look down to verse 30 and 31, this is a good summary of everything Judah tries to say to the Lord. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants, us, who you just said go in peace, we will bring down the gray of his hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. He will go to the grave with no hope. He will go to the grave with no joy if this happens. Judah has grown. Do you guys remember we studied this story of Judah several chapters ago where he made some major mistakes and then we saw him repent? Do you remember that? And then I said, in this repentance, God is going to use him. So Judah, he has gone through the crucible of severe mercy. And by fear in God, he has come to learn his family's interests need to be before his own. Before his want for food, before his want for pleasure, before his want for profit, my family comes first. And if Benjamin doesn't come home, we're going to have three deaths on our hands. Joseph, Benjamin, and the God wrestler, my father Jacob. What's going to happen? Look at verse 33 and 34. Driven by the truth that Judah promised his father, I will do whatever it takes to bring Benjamin home. He says this in verse 33. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant for my Lord. And let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Judah offers an exchange. Take my boy's life instead of. The NIV says, in place of. He's offering this substitute. If there is a punishment for the crimes, let me bear it so he can go free. Do you see that? The word in place of, it's the same exact word that is used earlier in Genesis. Genesis 22, when Abraham is called to sacrifice Isaac. Do you remember this? 
And he goes to the mountain and he's about to slay his own son. And then there is a ram caught in the thicket. It says in verse 13, Abraham went over, he took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering in place of his son. This is the depth that Judah is willing to go. He will become the ram. He will exchange his life for Benjamin's. Remember the big picture here. We're talking about how did resurrection come to meet Jacob? And for it to happen, there needed to be a sacrificial exchange. And for resurrection to come into our lives, to come into our neighbor's life, we need an exchange. We need a Judah who will say, I know he's guilty and I will take his punishment. While the sacrificial love of Judah displayed in this gospel-centered comment, it moves Joseph so deeply. Look at chapter 45, verse 1. Then Joseph, after that, Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. Remember in chapter 43, Joseph saw Benjamin and he was overcome with emotion. And do you remember what it said about it? He controlled himself. Do you remember that? And he ran out to weep. But here, he cannot control himself. After Judah's sacrificial offer for the good of his brother and the blessing of his father, listen, there's nothing left for Joseph to see. The tests are over. There's nothing left for God to do here. And so the journey of restoration has come to a conclusion and Joseph proclaims, I am Joseph. The passage says they were dismayed in his presence. They couldn't believe it. How could it be? For 20 some years they have believed him be dead and bore the guilt of that. And now he says, I'm your brother. So he invites them for a closer look. In verse 4 he says, come near to me, please. And then he tells them the story of God working in his life. I love how Lutheran theologian Chad Bird, he summarizes Joseph's words like this. Listen, am I your brother? Yes, Joseph, whom you sold into slavery. Am I angry with you? No, and neither should you be with yourself. Why? Why am I really here? Because God sent me here to save you, our whole family, and many others. So it's time for you to bring our father here so I can care for you all. That's a summary of what he says. And three times in this speech that Joseph gives, he says, God sent me here. God sent. God sent me here to be an instrument of salvation for Egypt, for you, and to continue his work of salvation for all people. So that they could have life instead of death. So he's telling his brothers this whole time and all this stuff, even the terrible things like you rejecting me and harming me, my imprisonment, my slavery, even the good stuff like me rising up to where I am today, even the great stuff like us being restored, it's all because God has provided salvation for you. 
And then Joseph fell on Benjamin's neck. He falls on his brother's neck and he kisses all the brothers. They just all have kissing together. And then in verse 15, look what it says at the end of verse 15. After that, his brothers, what does it say? Talked with him. At first, that seems insignificant. But remember how this all began. Genesis 37, Jacob shows favor to Joseph. The brothers get really ticked off. And it says in 37 verse 4, they hated him and could not speak peacefully with him. Now, after this journey of restoration, this reunion of the family, the forgiveness of God, the forgiveness of Joseph, the brothers have a chat. They're at peace. Resurrection. The the hatred is gone here because God has provided his children. And we have to know that if resurrection unto everlasting life and joy and peace is going to be a part of our story, it's going to be because of the mercy of God and his sovereign plan. Pharaoh hears about the good news. It pleases him in verse 16. Good news for Israel is good news for the whole world. And so Pharaoh, he's pleased about this. He sends all these provisions. Go get your family, Joseph. Bring them here. You can have Goshen, the best part of the land. I'm going to give it to you because you've been so great and faithful. Yes, let's do it. And this brings us all the way back to hungry, heartbroken Jacob sitting in Canaan. He has no idea what's going on in Egypt. What he knows is Joseph is dead, his favorite son. And now his new favorite son, he may never see again. Simeon is in prison. He has just trusted his children who have a poor track record of wise decisions with this whole thing. What is going to happen? It seems that his destiny is death by starvation filled with great sorrow. It might feel to him like God has abandoned him. God, you promised to bring me here to this land, to give me everything I need. You said you would always be with me, but I haven't eaten bread in days. My children are gone. The heritage that you promised, they're in Egypt. Where are you? Have you ever wondered if God has abandoned you. Maybe you feel spiritually starved. Or maybe you can't make ends meet and you wonder, where is God? Where's his sign that he is faithful? And I want to tell you, as we move on, you'll see that resurrection is the sign that God will never abandon you. But then off on the horizon, frail, beaten down, heartbroken Jacob sees something. Is it a mirage? It looks too good to be true. Loaded wagons and donkeys and all of his children. And they're not quarreling. They're getting along. Even Benjamin. They're coming with all kinds of stuff. 
Simeon has been freed. And they all come right up to Jacob. And it says they all told him. This is in verse 26. They told him, Joseph is still alive. And if that isn't good enough, crazy enough, he's the leader in Egypt. He's the dude you've been sending us to get food from. It's true, Dad. We've seen him with our own eyes. He kissed us. He gave us peace. He's alive. Resurrection has hit Jacob, entered his life, and brought life. If Joseph is alive, everything changes. He won't go to sorrow, to shield and sorrow. His brothers no longer carry the weight of their sin because they have been forgiven. Joseph is alive. The brothers have learned to care for one another. Joseph is alive, and so they will have food for the next five years in this famine. Joseph is alive, and so their entire family will be given the choice land in Egypt. Joseph is alive, and God has not abandoned Jacob. He has gone ahead of him to bring him to safety in the land of Egypt through the ministry of Joseph. That's a lot of good news. But Jacob can't believe it. He's stunned. He, remember, he saw the bloody robes. How could it be that Joseph is alive? <coughs> Provisions were made to bring him to belief. The brothers told Jacob the whole story, how Joseph had risen, given all of these things, the promise of, uh, of Goshen. And in the light of this truth that's dawning on his heart, in verse 27 at the end it says, Jacob was revived in his spirit. His spirit revived. He came to life. It's almost as the last 20 years he had been dead. And now with the news of life, he is revived. Sorrow is vanquished when resurrection is true. Death's grip is released. Hopelessness becomes hope. Famine becomes feasting. Troubles can be faced with joy. The future looks pretty bright if resurrection is true. And so Israel said, it's all as it should be. Let's go to Egypt right now. I want to see him. He is alive. So why do we fear death? Why does death make us cringe? It's because, listen, church, no matter how many times you've heard in your life, death is just a natural part of life, you know in your heart that is not true. Death is the exact opposite of life. It's the exact opposite of what you were made for. It is unnatural. It's the end. It's the vanquishing enemy. You were made to have life abundantly and everlasting in the presence of God. That's what you're made for. You were made to never fear separation. Your neighbor was made to live forever with divinity in eternity. That's what we're made for. And so, yeah, we fear death. But death is a reality because we have sinned against the God who made us for life. When we rebel, when we turn from the Father, when we reject his ways and his plan, when we harm one another or we shame ourselves by trying to gratify selfish desires rather than glorifying God, we bring on the curse of sin, which is death. And so we encounter 
what we were never meant to encounter. And each of us can confidently say, with Judah, God has found out my guilt. God knows our situations. He knows we're sinners, rebels, and enemies that turn from Him. But we can't outrun death. We can't outrun the consequences of the fall. See, while Joseph and his brothers have some semblance of restoration here, and while provision for life is made for Israel, they all encounter death. I mean, but here, before the, I'm going to, uh, what's it called? Spoiler alert. Before the end of Genesis, Jacob and Joseph die. This is because their hope for full restoration, for full restoration to life, lay outside of Egypt, in Canaan, in Jerusalem, on a cross, and through an empty tomb. You see, the sending God who sent Joseph has sent another servant. Jesus says in the Gospel of John many times, the Father has sent me. And though worthy of all creation's honor and praise, on account of his divinity and sovereignty, his innocence, Jesus was betrayed by his brothers and sold just like Joseph. But Jesus came into the world to provide life instead of death by becoming a sacrificial substitute like Judah for God's people. Knowing that we're guilty of our crimes and deserving punishment, the greater Judah, the sacrificial ram, Jesus willingly took our place in the grave to bear the wrath of God for our punishment. He took on our story. Listen, God encountered the unnatural. Yet Jesus willingly took our sin and our rebellion so that his story of life could become ours. On a Sunday morning, just a couple days after his crucifixion, at early light, the sinless Savior who gave his life for sinners was raised from the tomb, lifted up by the power of God. And God broke the chains of death because his sin paid for the wages, or his life paid for the wages of sin. And the news of resurrection, it went out. It went out to the disciples by, by angels and these female messengers. It went out by many proofs. And the angel told the women who came to the tomb, Jesus is alive. Peter saw the burial robes. But to most of Jesus' disciples, save maybe Mary who saw him, it was too good to be true. They just Really? All we know is death. How could someone defeat that? Was Jesus for real life when he said he would be raised from the dead? It's too good to be true. In Luke 24, some of Jesus' disciples are walking, they were walking home to Emmaus after the crucifixion. Then, stay with me, please. Jesus appeared to them hidden disguised like Joseph once was. He came to them and walked with his disciples on the road on a Sunday. The disciples, they tell this stranger who they don't know is Jesus. They say, Jesus is dead. Just like the brothers who didn't know it was Joseph told Joseph, 
Joseph is dead. And they go on to say to this stranger in verse 22 of Luke's gospel, chapter 24, some women in our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find the body, they came back saying that they had even seen vision of angels who said that he was still alive. The news of resurrection was too amazing. It seemed to them an idle tale. They couldn't believe it. But listen, here's the connection. When Jacob heard of Joseph's life, he was stunned in the Hebrew. But when the Hebrew was translated from Hebrew into Greek, you know what word they used? Amazed. Jacob was amazed. The same word in Luke 24 in this resurrection narrative. But Joseph proved his life by provision. And the stranger with the disciples on the road to Emmaus proved his resurrection by revealing himself to them in the scriptures, by revealing himself in the breaking of bread, by taking off the disguise, and they saw the risen Christ. Though Joseph was as good as dead, To Jacob, he was not really dead, and so he was not really raised. I know that. His tomb was first in Egypt and then was in Canaan. Jesus, though, the true Israelite, the sent redeemer, really died, but also was really raised in a bodily resurrection. His resurrection did not provide food for famine, but heavenly food for everlasting Life. It didn't provide restoration of just 12 brothers. It re- provided restoration for us unto God. That when we would believe in his life, we would be given victory over death. And Jesus, like Joseph, gave us many proofs. He appeared in his resurrected body to many, over 500. How about, how about people bursting out of the grave That's proof that something supernatural was going on. The resurrection is verified in the Gospels. It is the foundation of the epistles. The sea of martyrs under the throne of Christ who would rather die than deny the truth of resurrection is proof that Jesus defeated the grave. The existence of the church today is proof and fruit of the reality of the resurrection. Transformed lives, restored marriages, addictions broken, life given. This is all proof that Jesus is raised from the dead. Communion with him around the holy table is only possible because he has defeated the grave. And that we, by believing, can have life in his name. So I want to call you today to, like Jacob, Believe in the supernatural. Believe in the almost unbelievable. And then recognize, church, that the entire world, Vicki, our neighbor that you met, the people in your families, the, your coworkers, we are hungry for this resurrection unto everlasting life. The dying world needs to know Jesus. Your neighbor who wakes up in the middle of the night petrified by her mortality needs to know Jesus. Your coworkers might pretend that death won't get them, but it will, and they need Jesus. Because as much as we fear death, what is more fearful is God's wrath without Christ. 
So what the world needs more than anything is to know that the Son of God was sent to exchange his life for ours and was raised to restore us to everlasting life so that the grave is not the end. For like the risen Christ, the children of God will be raised. And you know what Jesus says to you? He appeared to his disciples after his resurrection. He said, just as God sent me, so now I send you. We are sent to proclaim resurrection. We are sent to proclaim forgiveness, each one of us. God has breathed on you the spirit so that you could proclaim the good news of resurrection. Thank you for your time working through this large chunk of scripture this morning. Let's pray. Father, there might be people in this room, even now, who have a twinge of doubt, a sliver of unbelief about your true resurrection. Would you, by your Spirit, fill in those gaps? Lord Jesus, speak. Bring us to full belief. And then as we come to this place of deep trust in the good news of your resurrection, let us live in that life today where we find hope and peace and joy and courage and purpose because we are risen indeed in Jesus Christ. And lead us even to our graves, Lord, with joy knowing that soon we will see you face to face. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.